en instant. So in this retreat, we are doing precisely what I suggested in the flyer and the announcements and all of that that we would do uh, exactly. So no false advertising here. We're focusing on the these three bardos, the first three bardos, the natural liberation, touching lightly on the shamatha, but then moving right into the vipassana. What we're doing right now. It's good to bear in mind uh, the kind of that sobering, sobering comment early on, and that is um, when Padmasambhava is teaching settling the mind into natural state. He says, "Now do this until you've settled your mind in its natural state. You know, finish it." And then he goes on to vipassana, and he says, "Now do this for one day, or as long as it takes. You really need some insight into emptiness." Because if you're still reifying reality and you're trying to do dzogchen, not going to work. One way or another, it's not. One way or another, you have to stop reifying, grasping onto the true existence of phenomena. And I've explained really clearly why that's the case. And so here we are. We're trying to do a balance here. Lama Zubaramuche and quite a number of lamas. They are a bit concerned about people focusing on shamatha uh, with a real, very valid concern. They'll just get stuck there. And they say, well, no, no, no Vipassana, no Vajrayana, no Tsokshana, no Mahamudra, no Poa, no nothing else. No, no, Shama, I haven't finished Shamata. Not fi-. And then they just do Shamata for their, for their life, maybe, especially if they're only doing a couple of hours a day. And then, if that's all you've done, have you really even, are you even really arousing motivation for path? So imagine you take decontextualized Shamata. And so now I just want to do Shamata. Why on earth, if you've not achieved it, why on earth do you think you can actually find a Buddhist teacher in your next lifetime? Why? See, Hindus teach shamatha. All kinds of people, secular, non-secular, and so forth. So if one is taking the big picture, I utterly agree with Lama Zubarambache. He's a very traditional Gulupa Lama. So are mine. They're outstanding Lamas. And they're not emphasizing shamatha all that much, although now, more so recently, I think for these very good reasons. It's possible to just get stuck there. And also, I know very well from my own experience, it's very often very easy to take shamatha as simply an escape route for everything that troubles you. I mean everything. Politics, global problems, personal problems, psychological problems, everything. So no, 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 never mind. Ah, breathing in, breathing out. Oh, that feels good. You know, Valium, shamatha, valium, shamatha, you know. Tomatoes, tomatoes. It really can be. And so that's why these outstanding lamas, you know, say, well, shamatha, you know, Sokni Rambaji likes the word stupid shamatha. Stupid shamatha. Is he disparaging the Buddhist teaching, disparaging the role of shamatha? No, he's not. He's a fine lama, outstanding lama. But he's saying it really can be stupid shamatha. You know, and he's perfectly right. I have no debate with him at all, period. I think he's providing a wonderful service. So... Here we are doing a balancing act. The shamatha, I emphasize it more than anybody else I know, although I'm, love, I'm happy to see that my root lama is emphasizing it more than he has over the last 40 years or so, his holiness the Dalai Lama. But I'm emphasizing it only because my own lamas have emphasized it to me. It's not something bright idea that I came up with. you know. So that's why. It's, it's just whatever, that's how it turned out for me. They always emphasize for me shamatha vipassana and then on to Dzogchen. Uh, so there it is. We see there's a balancing act. Not to get stuck in shama, but not marginalize or to pretend as if it's not important. I don't need to say again how important it is. So what I'd like to do with this session is to go back, but now for the first time and in a novel way. I'm not quite taught it this way. Mindfulness of breathing. It's brown rice and lentils. You know, it's good for you. It really is. It's good for the body. It's good for the nervous system. It's good for the mind. And if you practice with some nuance, it's not boring, it's very soothing, healing, and really does lead to shamatha. Uh, and what I would suggest, I think I've said it before, so I'll say it very, very briefly, as we continue on in the next five weeks of this retreat, by all means, I'm inviting you, came here for a Dzogchen retreat, not just to do a shamatha retreat, and have me, you know, shut up about everything else. This is a Dzogchen retreat, and I'm teaching Dzogchen in the 21st century. That's the way I teach. When I'm teaching Madhyamak, it's in the 21st century. If I'm teaching Shamat, it's in the 21st century. That's what I do, right? There it is. But you all knew that when you, before you came here. So it's this balance. It's this balance. But as I, as, as I listen to you one-on-one in our meetings, uh, many are still actually struggling, not simply dealing with, but sometimes struggling with just the sheer flow of rumination, of thoughts, more thoughts, more thoughts, just kind of getting a little bit bogged down 
in the sheer volume of thoughts and rumination, and you recall that for the, for the, for the Vipassana and for the Dzogchen, he says, now that you've calmed that discursive compulsive ideation, you know, now that you've called that, because you know, you're resting in the substrate consciousness, right? You did read the earlier chapter. <laughs> you know? uh, so what I'd like to do now is something I very much hope will be of benefit. Uh, it's novel, and yet I think it's utterly traditional, but I've never heard it taught this way. And I'm going to front load it. So what I want to do is, during the session itself, I really like, well, you're not going to have an opportunity to go back and forth from my instruction to your practice, you know, as we do. Guided meditations, you're listening to me, practicing, listening to me. There's a value for that, but this time the instructions are so, so simple that I'd like to give them all up front. It's going to take me about five minutes, and then we're going to have a totally silent session. Okay? So here it is. I've, tr- I've tried this medicine. I found it to be very good medicine. Not necessarily it's going to be good for you, but I think it will not harm. Okay? No side effects. Except for, <laughs> do not do this if you're pregnant. <laughs> or whatever. No, never mind that. Um, <laughs> or if you ever want to become pregnant. You know, as they say. <laughs> so here it is. It's really simple. It's coming back to this minim- minimalist approach to the Buddha's own teachings in the Pali Canon, but we find also in the Prajapanamita Sutra. Breathing in long one notes... The in-breath is long. I'm going to keep leave, leave out uh, personal pronouns. Breathing, breathing in long, one notes the in-breath is long. Breathing out long, one notes the out-breath is long. So there it is. That's what he had to say, right? So here's my commentary on this. You've heard now, so you know it better than your own address, I think. Relaxation, stability, and vividness. Here's the instruction. As you're practicing mindfulness of breathing, and what I would suggest, since this is really a Dzogchen retreat, that's what it is, Dzogchen dream yoga, Vipassana retreat, that you take the approach, in this session anyway, of not focusing on the nostrils, the abdomen, or the full body, the asanga approach, that approach, the Dzogchen approach, that you're really spending about 80%, that 80% of your awareness is just resting in awareness, right? But resting there, you don't have to go out seeking for the sensations of the breath. Oh, where are they? Where are they? It's like somebody comes and hugs you. You don't have to, you know, a big, big person comes and he gives you a hug, you don't have to look for the tactile sensations of the hug, right? They're coming in upon you. So all you have to do is be there, and I'm getting hugged. Oh, now it's loosening. Oh, he's hugged me again. Oh, now he's loosening up. Not many. He's a big guy. He hugs me once in a while, Michael. He's bigger than I am. He hugs me. I know I'm being hugged. You know? And then he stops. <laughs> We all know what I'm saying here. That is, when you're just resting there, minding your own business, just resting in awareness of awareness, the flow, the experience, the sense, the awareness that the breath is coming in, going out, you don't have to look for it, right? Like being hugged, it just, it's there. So just give it out of the corner of your eye. And just enough, if the the breath is long, you're noting it's long. Out breath is long, you know it is long. So you've heard me all say that before, so why am I repeating? Here's why this point right here. When you're in that phase of your mindfulness of breathing practice, where you, you sense, comparatively speaking, that the respiration is relatively long, or it's, it's moving around a lot. You have some long breaths, and then a couple of short ones, and a medium one, and then some long ones coming in, and some short ones. So it's kind of rovering around, settling itself in its own natural rhythm. So I think you've already experienced, you all experienced that, right? Periods in your practice, probably when you just fir- first sit down, it's relatively long, but some, once in a while, maybe a really short and then long, and then really long exhalation, maybe a bit of pause after the exhalation. This is the, your, your respiration settling. Like if you build a new house, then the house will settle, right? Settle. Uh, and, and then once it's settled, okay, well then, okay, now it's, it's found its place. It's settled in its natural state, right? So finally, here's the instruction. When you're in that phase of the practice where breathing in long, you're noting it is long. Breathing out long, you're noting is long. Here's the instruction. Ready? Emphasize relaxation. That's, that's it. Don't, get, don't fall asleep. Don't get dopey. Don't space out. But the big emphasis is during that phase, every out-breath, every out-breath, every breath you breathe, something, isn't that a mu- something like that, some music. But in any case, every out-breath is just releasing and releasing and releasing thoughts. Gently, sweetly, like a mother whose child is crying and just rocking, rocking, rocking until the, the child is quiet and calm and the crying has stopped. Okay? 
And you're doing that with a rocking motion. We've probably been doing, been doing that for millennia. Babies like it, you know? And this is the rocking motion of your respiration. In and out. Da-dee-dee, da-dee-dee. You know? Really, like, just don't fall asleep. You know, that's it. Relax deeper and deeper and just don't fall asleep. Right? And then if you find you're getting a bit spacey, nebulous, because a number of you reported that, then okay, you ready for 5%? Doing in-breath, wake up. Sharpen up a little bit. But big deal, out-breath. Oh. And just ever so persistently, just sweeping out, like sweeping dust out of an old room that's collected a lot of dust. And just keep on sweeping until all the dust is out. Every outburst, releasing, 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 as long as it's long, or long as it's erratic, long, short, long, short, that business. Relaxation, big, big relaxation. Right? And just keep on releasing that rumination, releasing the energy behind the compulsive ideation. Okay? Now, after some time, I'm going to leave it totally vague, that's what it has to be, you may find that that kind of like the house settling into sand, settling into soft earth and so forth, it finally settles. You may find that your respiration, the whole system is calmed down. You're not getting caught up in emotions and thoughts and mental afflictions and disturbances. You're really settling in, and you may find that naturally, with no modification, Emerson raised it the other day, without trying, oh, this is where it should go, and then I think I can do that, and then you know, manipulating the breath and subduing so the breath like training a dog. You know? uh, just you may find that after some time, you're breathing then either gradually or kind of suddenly, just slips into a much shorter mode. Short breathing in short. Note that it's short. Breathing out short. Note that it's short. And it will, be a fine, it will not be panting. It's not, not even remotely like panting or hyperventilating. If you're doing that, then lie down. You know, do something. I'll give you a hug. You know, but it shouldn't be that. This is getting shorter because you're really relaxed. You're not hyper. You're not, you're not panicking. Nothing like that. It's just your body doesn't need so much breath, so much air. It's simple, right? So if you find at some point that you're slipping into kind of a silky, rather rhythmic, like a sinusoidal wave, but rather shallow, rather shallow, but it's flowing, 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 then, all right, that's what the Buddha's, I, would, I will interpret. That's a pretty small interpretation. That's what the Buddha is referring to when he says in that second phase out of four, breathing in short, one notes the breath is short. Breathing out short, one notes the breath is short. You've heard all that before. Now here's the new part. When you slip into that, then now focus on stability. Stability means attend to the whole course of it. Stability means keep your awareness still. So the breathing's going in relatively short, in and out, relatively short. It's the stillness in the midst of motion. It's a stillness simultaneous with motion. It's manifest or single-pointed mindfulness, right? It's all clear, yeah? So you've heard a lot of this, but there's nuance here. You've not heard... Try it, see whether it works. Because this is either it's, it, it helps or it doesn't. If it doesn't, forget about it. And if it does, then forget who said it. It doesn't matter who owns this or who said it first. It's just, it doesn't matter. It's either true or false, helpful or not helpful. But that's it. When the breath goes short, stability. Right? Stability. How do you get stability? Maintain continuity. Keep the stillness of your awareness. And that's it. It's that simple. Right? Now, as that continues on, then you're going to find that you're moving towards stage four. And stage four is you don't completely dis your attention does not completely disengage from your meditative object anymore. It's, it's not perfect. It has coarse and medium excitation. But you're, if you're the rider on the bucking bronco, you're never just thrown off into the sky. You're holding on by a hand, holding on by a stirrup, but you're still engaged, even if you're all over the place with medium and, and subtle excitation. Still, you're there. So now what are you going to do as you're continuing? Because this, this may continue for some time, that subtle sinusoidal wave of relatively short breath, shallow breath, but smooth, silky, peaceful, gentle. Gentle. What's going to happen? Well, we know, logically speaking, this is what has to happen on this path, if, if you believe in it at all, is that the volume of air that you need is going to decrease. You're not going to have rapid, more and more rapid Breathing, that's just going to go to hyperventilation and just be weird. So that really can't happen. But it does happen, and it's kind of predictable that it would happen, that the volume would be less. So as you get into that mode, you're kind of in that fairly shallow breathing, but then the amount of air you're taking in, in that sinusoidal wave, is getting less and less and less. What do you do? 
attend to the whole body, the whole body of the breath. And that could be also just the whole, the whole field, like as if you're in an electromagnetic field that's fluctuating with a very slow frequency, you know, like they have that. So as if you're in an electromagnetic field that has a very slow pulse, like boom, boom, like that, but very low amplitude, then attend to the whole body of it, the whole course of it. Now smooth, very more fine-tuned continuity, continuity, finer continuity, right? And so in that way then, maintain. And as the sensation of the breath in this fluctuating field, somatic field, where you have these undulations, these vibrations, these, these ripplings, the reverberations of the breath, as the, as the volume of the breath is getting smaller, the, how do you say, the impact, the intensity, it's the wrong word, but it'll do, of the sensations, it's just getting subtler, just overall subtler. You're taking in less air. It's kind of obvious, which means that as the respiration gets subtler and subtler, the volume gets less and less and less. It doesn't get faster, 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 but it does get less and less and less. As that happens, of course, your experience of this fluctuating wave of your body, this field of the body, is going to get subtler. And if you stay tuned to it, stay engaged with it, without going back into course excitation, then what you will need is vividness, greater vividness. So when you're in that third mode, attending in that third mode where the Buddha said, attending to the whole body of the in-breath, as the, as the breath flows in, one attends to the whole body of the, of, of the in-breath. As the breath flows out, one attends to the whole body of the out-breath. You know, the whole, body, the whole body, that's what he actually says. Then now you're really going for vividness. Vividness. But vividness rooted in the stillness, the stillness rooted in relaxation. Right? And then finally, the fourth tetrad, fourth in the tetrad is uh, calming the whole system of the body. One breathes in. Calming the whole system of the body. One breathes out. And that's where you achieve shamatha. The whole system is calmed. Your senses implode as if you've fallen deep asleep, but your awareness is radiantly clear and free of excitation and laxity. So you see what I've done here is just take the classic core teachings on relaxation, stability, and vividness, apply these two, long, short, whole body, and calming the system of the body, and say, well, there's a, there's a match. That works. Okay? So no California New Age thing here. You know? But I've never, taught, I've never heard it taught that way. But now, can, can this possibly screw you up? Oh, no, I tried that Wallace technique, and it was terrible. I've had headaches ever since. I don't think so. I don't think it's going to happen. Okay? So is that, it's quite transparently clear, but if it's not, please ask right now. Yes? Do the eyes have to be open? No, they do not. Not for mindfulness of breathing. If they had to be open, we would have heard it. But I've never heard any teacher say, for this method, you have to have eyes open. No. You want to have them closed? The whole Theravada tradition, they never mention it. And they're good at this. Really good at this. Yeah. Zen tradition, they do a lot of mindfulness of breathing in some traditions. And I've never heard them say it either. So those are two august, you know, very venerable traditions. And they don't mention it. And so no. As you wish. So eyes open, hooded or closed. Si tu veux. Yeah. Good. Anything else? Yes. Guillermo. I already said don't go to your nose. Do it this way. As if, as if, so you're a pretty big guy. I'm not, I'm not that small. I won't be a little pipsqueak. If I came over and gave you a hug, big bear hug, you'd feel my hug all the way around, right? Because our chest will be against each other and I'll, and I'll hug you from the back, right? And so you can be aware of your whole body as they give you a hug, but still let your awareness be still. Yeah, that's it. That's why I was emphasizing, I think it's not a bad analogy, just getting a nice warm hug by somebody you, you know, feel comfortable with so you don't feel cringy and like creepy, you know. But you kind of feel it in the field of your body. There it is, you know, I'm being hugged, right? And so it's like that. You're in the field, this somatic field, where you're feeling throughout that field. It's not just in your belly or just your nose or just your chest. It's in the whole field. There is this reverberation, this fluctuation. Is probably the best word. Fluctuation of the field, you know? And sure, be aware of the whole field. That's fine. I think that's what he was getting at when he said be aware of the whole body. But we are aware from... Since this is a Dzogchen retreat, then don't just focus, don't focus on it like this with my finger, finger pointed horizontally or down or this way or this way. 
Just stay right where you are, and it will come to you. The, the, the sensations of the fluctuation of the field, corresponding in and out breath, that'll come to you. You don't have to go look for it. <coughs> all good? I get to not speak for 24 minutes all in a row. Happy days. Enjoy your session. I'll just keep the timer. I'd like to read a passage from the Pali Canon, which you've, a number of many of you have heard me uh, narrate before, but this time I want to give a bit more detail and uh, I think an interesting spin to it. It re- refers to that walk that the Buddha made, that rather long walk, I think it's something like 125 miles, uh, from Bodhgaya to Sadhanat. So you know the story, you achieve enlightenment, remain 49 days, and then was aroused, actually requested by Indra, Brahma, some, some gods, to turn the wheel of Dharma, and then he's on his way to Saranath, right? <coughs> Many of you remember this, and I'm just want, but now I want to give it rather definitively from the Pali Canon. This is a very close paraphrase by a fine, a fine Theravada scholar. So here's the story. On the way, not far from Gaya, so where he achieved enlightenment, the Buddha was met by an Ajivaka, and a jivaka, and I'll get to that in a little while, he's a wandering ascetic of a particular school. He was met by an ajivaka named Upaka, Upaka, an ascetic who, struck by the serene appearance of the master, inquired, who is your teacher? Whose teaching do you profess? So it would be a very common greeting. We have wandering ascetics, they were all over India at that time, still, fair, you know, still a number of them. So you see out on the country, country path, Two wandering ascetics, and they say, oh, you look very peaceful. Uh, so what did he say? Who's your teacher? And what teaching, you know, what's your school? I'm in a jivaka. Who are you? What, what's your trip? So very common greeting, you know? So it sounds very ordinary, right? And then the Buddha replied, though, I have no teacher. One like me does not exist in all the world. For I am the peerless teacher, the arhat. I alone am supremely enlightened, quenching all defilements, Nirvana's calm have I attained. I go to the city of Kasi, which is Benares, to set in motion the wheel of Dharma. In a world where blindless, blindness reigns, I shall beat the deathless drum. It's quite a response. I mean, I just, all I wanted to know was, <laughs> you know, and uh, that was a bit more than I expected. <laughs> you know, I, okay. Uh, and then Upaka responded, friend, kind of really like, okay, buddy. It's like that. I'm not being sarcastic. Okay, buddy. Uh, you then claim you're a universal victor? Said Upaka, and the Buddha replied, those who have attained the cessation of defilements, they are indeed victors like me. All evil have I vanquished, hence I am a victor. Upaka shook his head, remarking sarcastically, maybe so, friend, and took a bypath. So this is cited in numerous accounts in the the various parts of the Pali Canon. It's very, very close. Uh, And I'll just give a tiny commentary that's straight from the the Theravada scholarship, and I'm not a Theravada scholar, but just as a matter of curiosity, what what school was he from? Because bear in mind, India has always been heterogeneous. Even when the Muslims came in, and they really are very keen about homogeneity of belief, they couldn't get them. You know, there, there's so many people resisted. And then the Hindus are all over the place. They have so many different schools, and that's always been true. Hinduism never had a pope. India never had a pope or, any, or a king or an authority. They say, okay, everybody, line up. You either agree or else, you know, we'll excommunicate or something. You never had that. So there's always been heterogeneity in India. It's always true. Well, it was very true at the time of the Buddha. So these ajivakas, just as a matter of curiosity, what was this guy's school? And this is now, ajivakas believed in absolute determinism, okay? in which human actions and choices are unable to overcome the forces of fate. Uh, so determinism. Well, Einstein was a determinist. Daniel Dennis is a determinist. Uh, Daniel Wegner, who wrote a book called The Illusion of Free Will, is a determinist. Many are, many especially biologists and old school uh, physicists who don't really know about 20th century physics, like Einstein. 
He started it, but he never really accepted quantum mechanics. So it's really a very common view that all of our actions and so forth, when we have the feeling of making choices, they're not really choices at all. Because they're all predetermined by atoms, by laws of physics, by the molecular act, cellular activity in your brain. And it's all predetermined. You know? So that's not some strange, weird, cuckoo idea from India. That's very common in, especially the life sciences today, very common. Okay? So that kind of makes him contemporary. Most were atheistic. Oh, that's true of a lot of people nowadays. A lot of scientists, not all, but many, scientific materialists. No God, no way, no way. So kind of, he sounded like a scientist. And they followed a strict regimen of asceticism. A lot of scientists do too. When they're doing their research and so forth, like Cliff Saron, boy, when those people out there in, in the Rocky Mountain Center, that was really very ascetic. They're all, they all left their families, and for three months, they're hunkering down. And I mean, really, it was very ascetic, wasn't it? And scientists often are. When they're off in their observatory and astronomical or what have you, it's a very ascetic way of life. True. So they were also strongly against the caste system, and scientific, the scientific community generally is. They don't care whether you're a, you know, from arist- nowadays. 19th century is different. But nowadays, they don't care whether you're an aristocracy or whether you come from a penniless little village in Thailand. They don't care. If you're really a good scientist, that's it. So it's very egalitarian that way. Very admirable. These people were too. And I, so it wasn't just the Buddha who was against the caste system. These Ajivikas were too. They said, that, that stinks. We're just human beings here. So it sounds, actually sounds very familiar. And their leaders were sometimes depicted as ending their lives voluntarily when they felt that their bodies or minds were beginning to decline, either by fasting to death or by drowning. That's what, that's what Robin Williams did. He had a Parkinson's disease. He is 60, 60-some years old. And he saw it's going to be all downhill from here. He says, well, I don't want to hang out and watch how this turns out because I know how it turns out. There's no cure for Parkinson's. It just gets worse and worse and worse. So, finished. And many people do, right? It's called euthanasia, isn't it? Where, okay, pull the plug. So I don't find any, and they did it by fasting or death, you know. So actually, I can really relate to him. I think I know a lot of ajivakas in the 21st century. No, no sarcasm at all. I mean, you know, it's not a stupid idea. Nothing there was foolish. But now I want to pause. So wanting ascetics walking along, it sounds like a, like a Jew or a rabbi and somebody came into a bar. You know? Two wandering ascetics are walking along in the middle of nowhere, and one of them sees the Buddha, and he says, hey friend, who's your teacher? What's your teaching? Does anything strike you odd about the story you just heard? Anything like strike you odd? No. That's interesting. You might want to read it again and again until it really strikes you as odd. Have you ever seen a statue of the Buddha? Have you ever heard about 32 major and 80 minor marks? 32 signs, 80 symbols of a Buddha's body. It's in all of Buddhism. Look at Japanese, Chinese, Thai, Burmese, Tibetan, Mongolian. When they're depicting the Buddha, He's not just some guy walking along a road being very peaceful. He's got an ushnisha. That will catch your attention. Let alone the other 79 marks and the 32. I mean, this guy looks really unusual. I mean, really. I mean, look at any tanka, any statue. Look around, open your eyes here in Thailand, look at any image of the Buddha. If you were walking along a street, and this guy is walking towards you, would you ask him, hey, dude, what, who's your teacher? What, what school are you belonging to? I wouldn't. I'd say, hey, dude, what's that on top of your head? And that's only the beginning. You look really weird. Are, are you a human? Are you a god? If I were living in India, I'd say, are you a, I'd be Drona. I'd be, are you a god? You kind of look humanoid to me, but... You look really different. Right? Are you a god? Are you a celestial being, an elemental being? Are you, are you human? That's what I'd be asking. If I saw somebody with 32 major and 80 minor marks, I wouldn't say, hey, dude, what's, what's your teacher and what's your, what, what school do you belong to? I'd say, where did you get that body? Did that not occur to you? Really? If you bump into the Buddha and he looks like that, you would just ask him, who's your teacher? 
I say, are you human? Where's your spaceship? Take me to your leader. That's what I'd be saying. Because you really must come from another planet. They, that just doesn't look very human to me. Humanish, that's all I'd say. So why didn't he comment? Why didn't he even come up? And when he, if he's looking like that, and he just said, there's no one else on me, no else, do I need to read it again? There's nobody else like me on the planet. Nobody, I'm alone. I say, well, you certainly look unique. That's what I would say. Well, you really look unique. I mean, I've never seen any... Let's talk. This is really weird. And What? But I wouldn't say, whatever, dude, and walk off. And that's what he said, with sarcasm. So you know, I'm not doing any California trip here. He said, whatever, dude. Yeah, yeah, right. And he walked off. So I think we need to seriously ask, did this guy see the 32 major and 80 minor marks? Or was he blind? He never mentioned that he was blind, but then how do you walk by, your ro- by yourself on a road and be blind? You'd have a seeing eye dog or somebody you know, carrying him, you know, leading him so he doesn't bump into things. So I think he's not blind. And they, they would have mentioned he was blind. Right? But let's pursue that a little bit. It's kind of, it, now does it strike you as weird? Now does it not, isn't there anybody here who, for whom it doesn't strike you as weird? That he just said, hey, dude, what's your teacher and what's your teaching? If he's looked like that, right? So now it's weird, right? Why didn't you think of that before? 32 major, 80 minor marks. It's in every Buddha image you'll ever see. And it's widely accepted. It's not just some later superstition or... No, no. And, and the Buddha, you go into the Buddhist teaching, you really study them in de- and they'll tell you the specific merits, the st- virtues accumulated over eons for this, this sign, this sign, this sign, this sign. Each one of them has an immense history behind it. Right? So it's not just mutation. It's like, this is a big symbol. Well, let's follow a little bit. Now that we have something really weird on our hands, let's pursue it a little bit farther. When exactly did those 32 major and 80 minor marks pop up? When he came out of his mother's womb? Did his mother say, my God, what have I given birth to? <laughs> like, and who's his father? <laughs> if I were his dad, I'd say, I don't think I'm his father. You know? <laughs> I mean, he doesn't look like me at all. <laughs> I'd be very suspicious. But there's no reference. I've never seen any references in all the life accounts of the Buddha that when he was, you know, 12, 14, 15, 29, he left home, that he already had the, all the major manner marks because he wasn't a Buddha yet. So why would he have the marks of a Buddha when he's not a Buddha yet, not in the Theravada approach? Right? So kind of like, since there's no reference to them, we should assume he didn't have them, right? So there he is sitting under the Bodhi tree, after all the six years, and he has this wonderful night. You're imagining it, yeah? Ping, 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 ping. We're seeing this like... <laughs> He's going this incredibly rapid genetic mutation. His head's popping up and his ears are getting long and his fingers are getting weird and he's got these symbols, these got big birthmarks on his, you know, these dharma chakras on the soles of his feet. And that's just the short list. That's all happening all of a sudden? Like somebody watching, you know, like, is that how it happened? It's not, it's not a little bit weird, right? Now, years later, when Drona sees him, he's actually following his footprints and he's seeing the Dharma chakras in the sand. The Dharma chakras, that's one of the signs. The soles of his feet have Dharma chakras. And so when you leave a footprint, it leaves a Dharma chakra footprint. Well, Drona, or Dona in, pa- in Pali, he followed the footprints because that was, and they're very big. The Buddha's way beyond Michael's size. I don't know, size 16, 17, and they were big feet. He was a very unusual form, right? So when Drona, and then Drona follows the foot, like a tracker, tracks him, and then he sees him. He said, are you a god? That's what I would be asking. If I were living in India at that time, and, and the notion of gods coming down and taking hum- humanish form was very, very commonly believed, very, very common, that's the first thing I'd ask. Are you a god? And then I would, I would run the checklist too. That's what I'd ask. Are you a celestial being, like an angel, an elemental spirit? And then finally, when I'm getting no, 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 I say, well, then, are you just some really weird kind of human? That's what I'd be asking. But that's not what he asked. He just said, hey, who's your teacher? Who's your teacher? So I'm raising a profound point here. 
It's not my point, but it is a very deep one. And that is, we have the Pali Canon and we have the Theravada interpretation of that canon. And I, have, I think you must all know I have enormous respect for it. I'm not a Theravada Buddhist, certainly not a Pali scholar, but I have been, I think, enormously enriched, blessed, understanding has increased by having the good fortune to come under the, uh, under the guidance, especially of Balangoda Ananamaitreya, a superb scholar, meditator, monk. He was like a Galileo for Buddhism. He was everything. And other teachers as well. And having practiced Sarpetana, Anapanasati, and so forth, I just, it's, it really, I feel boundless reverence uh, for the Pali Canon, of course, but also a lot of respect for the Theravada. It's an extraordinary tradition. Really, it truly is. And that's it. I'm not going to say but. It really is. And I've had really been blessed by a very rich correspondence with Bhikkhu Bodhi on a number of occasions now. We've really tackled deep issues. And I've really enjoyed it. And they're kind of pretty much on the web by now, I think, our dialogues, because polished them up and made them available to other people. Because it doesn't happen all that often. People who have you know, spent 40, 50 years studying Tibetan Buddhism and then talking in detail with a really top-notch Theravada scholar. I don't know how often that happens. I think it should happen more often. Because he's learned from me, I think, and I know I've learned a lot from him. Okay? So there it is. But in the Theravada interpretation of the Pali Canon, um, there is a widespread belief, and Bhikkhu Bodhi told me that this is his belief, that there is a real world out there. It's a, there's a real world out there. Period. There's a bottom line. There's something really out there in this physical environment. And that includes our bodies, the environment, the cosmos, and so forth. In other words... They do not question. Bhikkhu Bodhi is an outstanding Theravada scholar, monk, translator, and so forth, uh, is not questioning what appears to be true. There's a real world out there. And it has a real history. right? That's not explicitly challenged, not in any clearly defined way in the Pali Canon. There's an outstanding, another very good scholar, I've never met him, but by reputation very good, named Luis Gomez. He was at the University of Michigan. Very, very good. Um, and he, he wrote, a, wrote a paper, quite a renowned paper, called Proto-Madhyamaka in the Pali Canon, I believe it is. It's very close to that. And it's available online now. And he is an outstanding scholar of, oh, Sanskrit. I'm almost certain he, uh, he must have known Tibetan. Of course he knew Pali. He, and knowing Madhyamaka quite well, then he poured through the Pali Canon. And he found intimations, suggestions that could be interpreted, or almost like embryonic if you drew this one out, you might come to Madhyamaka, right? And he wrote a whole paper on that. Very scholarly, very astute, knowledgeable, well-informed. So maybe the embryo of a middle-way view of the emptiness of inherent nature, but Theravada says, no, 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 that's, no, no, we're not going there. You, Naga, you Nagarjuna people, you Shunyavadans, you nihilists, you, know, you people who are promoting emptiness, non-existence, uh, you can follow that route, but that's not, that's not where we are. So on the one hand, there's basically an unquestioning continuum of what the Madhyamikas would call reification, and that is grasping onto the inherent nature of phenomena, of the environment, and so forth. They appear to be, from their own side, they are. But when it comes to self, Atman, the self, the, you know, the person who has a body and mind, who has five skandhas, then there's a widespread belief. It's not uniform, but it's very widespread. The self doesn't exist I'm Atman, no self, no self, there's no self. Any more than there's an elephant in the room, look around, there's no elephant. Likewise, look among your five skandhas, there's no self. Look at thoughts arising. You don't find something separate from the thought that is the thinker, the self that doing it, is not to be found. And therefore, the self doesn't exist. So in the Dzogchen view, everything I'm saying here is not opinion, it just, it's the way things are. If you want to debate, I'll beat you. It's the way it is. Uh, there is such a thing as factual statements about Buddhism. I'm not saying this is a factual statement about reality. I'm not saying, oh, we have to believe it, but this is true about Buddhism. From the Dzogchen perspective, when they're laying out the nine yanas, the nine spiritual vehicles, starting with Sravakayana, which corresponds very closely to Theravada, not equivalent, but very strong correspondence, uh, it is said in the Dzogchen tradition that in the Sravakayana, they ascertain personal identitylessness, the absence of an inherently self, but they do not apprehend or realize, understand or have insight into the emptiness of phenomena. 
phenomenal identitylessness. No, they, they, they grasp onto the identity phenomena, that there really is like a, a cell phone in my hand. Well, it's really there. And you can call it whatever you like, cell phone, paperweight, uh, projectile, anything you like, just doesn't matter. It is what it is, and there it is, and it's really there, and that's it. That's the end of the discussion. And that's when we start banging on, on, you know, on chairs and so forth. From a Dzogchen perspective, and from the Majimika perspective, that view of affirming the inherent existence, the true existence of all external phenomena, all the objects of the mind, all the objects of the mind, not just physical, but thoughts, inherently existent, emotions, mental afflictions, states, consciousness, inherently, everything inherently existent. The reification or grasping under true existence of all phenomena other than the self is the case of falling to the extreme of eternalism. That's exactly what it is. It falling to the extreme of existence, of inherent existence, and that is all objects of the mind, all dharmas that are objects of the mind, they inherently exist. Well, then you've, then you've fallen into that extreme, which the whole world has fallen into, just generally speaking. If you've had no training in philosophy whatsoever, your default mode is to grasp onto the true existence of phenomena, because that's how things appear. I mean, it's so obvious. You, you look at the cell phone, I can see it there, I can, I'm focusing there, and I reach out and touch it. The apparent, you know, it sure is. I mean, proof. You know, I, and you want to see further proof? Yep, it's inherently existent. Well, you fall into one extreme. But now, when you go to the other side, the self, and there are contemporary Theravada scholars, really smart ones, and I just read an article that Morgan kindly sent me today by a fellow who is actually not trained in Buddhism, but certainly talks a lot about it. Uh, he's drawn the conclusion that many have, including very good Theravada scholars. The self doesn't exist at all. doesn't exist at all. I mean, look for it. Where you find your head, you find brains, you find all the internal organs, you find thoughts. But where is this self that is the thinker, the feeler, the one who is experiencing? Where is that? Not findable, therefore doesn't exist at all. Well, from the Madhyamika perspective and from the Dzogchen perspective, when it comes to the self, you fall into the extreme of nihilism. Because you just said the self doesn't exist at all. And why? Because you can't find it under analysis. Well, that may be a bit problematic. Because... Here's an inherently exist by the Theravada view and by the view of this, this writer. Um, I'm, 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 carrying, I'm holding in my hand right now for podcasters, I'm, I'm holding a pair of eyeglasses, my reading glasses, right? Well, I'm going to look for it. As we, you know, you, you're looking inside at your skandhas, your thoughts and so forth, and I'm going to look for myself now. And I'm finding forum and I'm finding feelings and I'm finding thoughts and I'm finding consciousness and mental afflictions and occasionally a virtue now and then and none of those are me, and I'm nowhere to be found, and all that's looking is just consciousness and mental factors, and so therefore, no self. And so therefore, the self doesn't exist, because I cannot be found, the self cannot be found among the skandhas, nor is there any self to be found up outside of the skandhas, some s separate entity, right? Therefore, since I don't exist inside the skandhas, and I don't exist outside the skandhas, and there's no place else, therefore, I don't exist at all, right? That's their view. Well, you're ready for eyeglasses? Here are my pair of eyeglasses. I'm looking at the right stem. That is not a pair of eyeglasses. If I look, I can't even look through that, so it's certainly definitely not a pair of eyeglasses. So that's not it. I'm looking at the left stem. That's not a pair of eyeglasses. Do I, do, do I need to continue? I'm looking through the light, right lens. That's not a pair of eyeglasses. That's a lens, a piece of glass. If you went into an eyeglass store and say, I want a pair of eyeglasses, and they gave you a lens, are you going to buy it? Are you going to say, oh, thank you for the pair of eyeglasses, when they give you one lens? It's not a pair of eyeglasses. How about the other lens? Nope. How about the little thing that holds the, you know, the little metal rim that holds them together? Is that a pair of eyeglasses? No. And the difficult point, subtle point, but a very important point is, simply putting, see, these are all different parts. There's how many... Uh, stems over the ears are there. There are two of them. There are two things. They are separate. They're two different entities, right? This one and this one. They're not the same. Two. There are two pieces of glass. Now we have four. There are four things here. And there's also the little rim that holds them all together. There's five. So there are five pieces that were put together at one point, right? Five. Well, there's only one pair of eyeglasses. So five things cannot be one thing. Because five things remain five things. 
And to say, well, the configuration of five, that's a conceptual abstraction. The configuration of five. That's a conceptual abstraction that you're simply imposing upon a set of parts, none of which are a pair of eyeglasses. And even when they're configured in a certain way, that doesn't mean that now, inherently, there really is one thing there called a pair of eyeglasses. So the, the pair of eyeglasses is nowhere to be found among its skandhas, among its component parts. Not in them individually or collectively. Because bear in mind, if it, you say, no, no, the collection is them, good. I'll take them apart right now. I'll put one stem here, one stem there, one lens here, one lens there, and then the little iron rim say, good, buy a, buy a pair of eyeglasses. That's not a pair of eyeglasses. That's, that's a kit that might turn into a pair of eyeglasses if you know how to assemble it. Where are the screws, by the way? Oh, now we have more than five. Right? So the eyeglasses are not found among the component parts of the eyeglasses. But if you say, never mind, let's, um, let's just get to the real core of eyeglasses, and you take out one piece and take out another and say, okay, where is the pair of eyeglasses that has two lenses? Because this is true, isn't it? This pair of eyeglasses has two lenses and two little bars here and then one little iron rim. It has all of those. Those are its parts. So good, well, I just want to find the it. So let's set aside each of the parts, and I want now, set, and now here's the eyeglasses that has all those parts all by itself. Uh-oh, there's nothing there. And so there's no pair of eyeglasses outside of the parts, there's no pair of eyeglasses inside the parts, and now that goes for the rest of the universe. That nothing exists. Because you can do that same ontological analysis to anything, including a photon, an electron, a quark. You can get as small as you like. They still have attributes. Everything has attributes. A, a galaxy has attributes. The Buddha's mind has attributes. Elementary particles have attributes. But you can't find them within that collection of attributes or parts, but you can't find them as the part-haver outside of that. So by the same reasoning, that, like this author I just read today, and a number of contemporary Theravada scholars, by the, exactly the same reasoning, that if you say the self doesn't exist at all because it cannot be found among the skandhas or apart from the skandhas, that means you've now dissed the entire universe. None of it exists. And that's why it's called falling through the extreme of nihilism. So they've missed the middle way on both counts. They fall into the extreme of eternalism for the entire physical world because they're grasping onto true existence as if it's inherently there. But then when it comes to the self, then they, they fall to the extreme of nihilism, like there's no one here at all. It's just a, an impersonal array of events taking place. No person, there's no sentient being then. But the Buddha did, and I had a detailed and really wonderful conversation with Bhikkhu Bodhi about this. We bring some nuance to this about the self. And he said, you know, and he, I, didn't, I didn't quote it here, I didn't want to inundate you with quotes, but he said the Buddha often referred to people by name. He would say, you. You, you must strive diligently, be an island unto yourselves, right? So what's he talking about? Non-entities? He's talking to people. He's talking to them in, in, as second-person pronouns, you and he and so forth. But if those words refer to nothing at all, then why does the Buddha keep on perpetuating the myth that people exist? So from this Dzogchen Majamaka perspective, the Theravada interpretation, if that's insofar as that's representative, They've missed it on both counts. Right? So the middle way is somewhere there, but it's not on neither of those extremes. Neither reifying phenomena nor yourself, but neither negating totally the existence of yourself or phenomena. And we've already been through that with the mind. We just did it this morning, right? It's not existent for these reasons, but it's not existent for these reasons. So how do you find the middle way? Identifying the extremes and going elsewhere. So there's one story. This relates now the, where's my agenda here? I'll be cards on the table. It's a theme of, of reification, of accepting what most intelligent, educated people and most unintelligent and non-educated people believe. In other words, it cuts across all the educational and IQ spectrum. Most people on the planet accept the obvious. There's a real world out there. And if they're if they have some knowledge of science, they will tell you it's about, according to our best account, it's about 13.8 billion years old, and here's its story. And they'll go into geology, into evolution of life on the planet, and so forth, and say, that's the story. I mean, this is really good science behind that, and that's what really took place, and that's what's really out there. 
And now it's backed by, instead of just, you know, folk, folk like Aristotle, you know, who just kind of talked about everything without close investigation of much of anything, the science have closely investigated a lot of things for 400 years. So their story of the history of the universe, the nature of atoms, the nature of the planet, what's the core of the planet, what's the nature of Venus and Sun and Moon and so forth, well, that's not folk, that's pretty sophisticated. Picture of the, of the universe based upon very rigorous observations, measurements, and mathematical analysis. And the widespread consensus is they're mapping onto a reality that's already out there. And if, unless there's nobody here that hasn't gone through grade school, if you've been through grade school, in this modern world, Singapore, Germany, Australia, doesn't matter, then you are exposed to the scientific worldview. Why shouldn't you be? There's an awful lot of knowledge there, right? But this means from grade school on, you are taught about this is what's really going on. And you get it in middle school and high school, and if you go into college and you do anything related to science, you're going to get more biology, chemistry, physics, maybe even some astronomy and cosmology and so on. And it's all the same story. It's really out there. And this is, how, this is what science has progressed in. Okay? So if you believe that, I'm sorry, but if you really believe that, you're not questioning that, then that's fine. I'm not going to get excited and say, oh, you're stupid or something. No, I mean, you're accepting the very, very commonly accepted view based upon a lot of research, a lot of progress. And Dzogchen is impossible for you. There's no reason to stay if you're not willing to question that. And what I'm not saying is now you have to believe because you can't come to the Dzogchen door unless you believe something. Well, that's just brainwashing. I can't do that. I can't say you can't believe this anymore, otherwise you can't practice Dzogchen. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying if, if one is not willing to question the beliefs you have in the 21st century about the universe being existing by its own side, you don't have to. You can be a Theravada Buddhist, but we'll get to, get to that in a little while. But Dzogchen, or Vajrayana in general, I will say this directly from His Holiness, but he speaks for the whole tradition. If you're venturing into Vajrayana of any of the classes of Vajrayana, Kriya Tantra, Sharya Tantra, or Upa Tantra, Yoga Tantra, and so forth, you know, all of that. Kriya, Upa, Yoga, Maha Yoga, an, uh, Ati Yoga, Anu Yoga, Ati Yoga, all of this, the Yoga Yoga, six, uh, three outer Tantras, three inner Tantras in Dzogchen, or the four classes of Tantra in the New Translation Schools. What His Holiness says here, and they're just, frankly, it's not just an authority, it, he has to be right. And that is, if all you've realized or have some deep insight into is the emptiness of inherent nature of yourself, but you're still reifying, grasping onto the true existence of your body, your mind, and other sentient beings and all other phenomena, you can forget about Vajrayana. It's not, you'll never have, as long as you're not willing to question that. That's, we're not asking you have to believe, but if you're not questioning that, then there's just no reason to go for tantric empowerment and start imagining that you're this and that and that. Any more than, you know, I go over to Emerson's house, hey Emerson, can we play cowboys and Indians? You be the Indian and I'll be a cowboy, okay? And then, woo, 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 and I mean, that's really cute, but not for adults. You know, if you're five years old, that's cute, but for adults, you look pretty stupid, you know. And you look no less stupid if you think you're a 16 arm bull. And that's what you're, you know, with many, many legs. 12, I think, isn't it? Mm. Is that somehow more reasonable than just a mere cowboy and a mere Indian? Because I'm clo a lot closer to being a cowboy than I am to being a 16 armed 12 legged bull. So if one's more unrealistic, I think it's the bull. Big bull. So his holiness point is making a really important point. You know, it's fun to play with it a little bit, but uh, you must have if you don't have some insight in the emptiness of your body, of your mind, of other people, other sentient beings, and the entire the container, the universe, the inanimate universe, then if you practice Vajrayana, it's just silly. It's just silly, right? And as that is true for all of Vajrayana, well, now we're going to the pinnacle of Vajrayana, Dzogchen, it's just silly. So we have to grapple with this. It's not comfortable, it can be very irritating, but we have to grapple with it. And if you don't want to practice Vajrayana, that's fine. If you don't want to practice Dzogchen, it's fine. If you want to reify the world, you're fine. 
We have no excommunication here. And there are Theravadins, there's the Vaibhashikas within the inter-Tibetan tradition, the Vaibhashikas reify the entire physical world, the Satrantikas reify the physical world. But the, but the Dalai Lama said, if you want to enter into Vajrayana, at least Chittamatra. At least Chittamatra. That will open the door. Okay, you can start now. You can't stay there, but okay, that's a good transitional, that you are now no longer grasping to any external physical universe at all that exists independently of the mind. Well, okay, at least there's nothing out there that you have to bump against when you start you know, trans- transforming your environment and so forth. You're not laying you know, whipped cream on top of something, a tractor, let's say, rather than giving something vulgar. You're not spraying whipped cream on a tractor. The whipped cream of a mandala on the tractor of a great big machine of the physical universe operating according to the laws of physics. Because that's really silly. Tractors and whipped cream, they really don't go together. You know? So at least Chittamatra, but where you really need to go is to stop reifying not only external phenomena, but stop reifying your own mind. And if you don't do that, then to start thinking, my mind is Dharmakaya, it's a tractor and whipped cream all over again. The tractor of your mind with a little whipped cream, you know, of, I'm Dharmakaya. It's ridiculous. It's silly. You know? So this is why, if we were living in Tibet, I'd never mention science. It doesn't matter what people in Europe believe. You're innocent of it. You've never been touched by it. It's a virus that you've never been exposed to. You know? But all of us have. So this is why I'm passionately, in my own life, I'm living what I'm teaching. Let's not be fractured. Let's not be modern, reifying, run-of-the-mill, modern people reifying everything six days of the week, but then when it's Dakini Day, then, you know, we're... Oh, 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 hey, hey, ho, ha. And then it's back. That you, you charge way too much for that, you son of a bitch. You know, you know. <laughs> it's got to be integrated. Otherwise, I'm going to stop teaching because it's all over the place. Materialists talk the talk. They're not living like materialists. They, many of them are very nice people, but not if they follow the implications of their own view that they are robots, their children are robots, their spouses are robots. Come on. You know, it's got to be integrated. Otherwise, why bother? I'm integrated. I'll go home. I have my meditation hut. I'll be integrated all by myself. Okay? That's why I'm messing around here. Do I like talking about the not? No, I'd rather just meditate. I don't even want to talk at all. If I want to talk, I'd rather talk about Dharma. But if I'm going to talk about Dharma in the 21st century, where we live, can't ignore what's going on can't ignore the viruses that you've already been exposed to that are in your bloodstream, your mind stream, and pretend as if they're not there. Right? That's why I'm doing this. So, here's something now you'll not expect, but somebody kindly printed this out for me. It's on the same theme, but you won't see this coming. So today, and I've received a number of emails on this point. It's, gotten, it's really a buzz. Today we received a phone call from Nepal informing us of the unexpected death of Shiva Lotu Rinpoche. Quite young, only like 49 years old. But Shiva Rinpoche is the incarnation of Golok Seta Rinpoche, a great Terma Ch practitioner, and lineage holder of the Toluk or Northern School of Dujong Lingba's Terma Ch, which comes from Digyal Rinpoche. Okay, so this is a, this is one of the major elements of the Dujong lineage. Not only Dzogchen, but Ch, uh, Sangye Kando and her husband Lama, uh, Lama Chunam have just done a translation of it. Big one, the root text and a commentary. And Sangye Kando is a very experienced chut practitioner and terma practitioner. She's very good. If you if want to study terma or chut, sh- I know there are other good teachers, but among my personal friends, she'd be the one. Don't look at me. Forget about it. You know, I don't teach them. I don't practice them. Okay. So, but she's really good. But this Lama, he was really an adept at this. So Lama Dawa's father was a student of Golok Setarambache. <coughs> and when Lama Dawa's child, he and his family used to travel around like gypsies with Setarambache's group, Lama Dawa tells many fantastic stories of Setarambache and the amazing chut practices they used to do in the wilds of the Himalayas. Shiva Rinpoche, just, who had just passed away just a few days ago, so a number, so many of these, two Galupageshis, the consort of his only Dujan Rinpoche, and now this one, so they kind of clustered here. Shiva Rinpoche was recognized as the re- reincarnation of Golok Setarambache by his holiness Dujan Rinpoche. He maintained a monastery and, re- and residence in Humla, a remote region of Nepal where he had many students. He also lived in the Kathmandu Valley and traveled a few times to the west, most recently to Russia to teach. He had been sick in the hospital in Kathmandu with liver disease. It's a big problem in Nepal. My dear friend uh, Francisco Varela, who I still miss, uh, died like 51. He was only 51, early 50. He died, liver. 
spent time in Nepal, probably it's hepatitis C. So it's uh, look out for Nepal. Apparently he knew he was going to die, and he told his attendants that he wanted to return to Yangrik in Humla, where his father, the second Degya Rinpoche, passed away. Yesterday, September 4th, so that's now three days ago, four days ago, on Guru Rinpoche Day, this um, Shiva Lodra Rinpoche, he called his students to perform a Guru Tsok, the Tsok, the Guru Puja, or Ganeshakra, it's called, Ganeshakra, and then gave them extensive teachings and advice about their practice. Then he told them that this would be his last teaching to them as he was going to die. He told them that if they do good practice, they will die like this, with no pain or suffering or any single belonging. He instructed them to leave his body for five days, and after that they could do whatever they like. With that, he took off all his clothes, sat in meditation, and then after two or three minutes, rainbow lights and spheres of light began to fill the room. And he entered into Tukdam, entered into the clear light of death. He remains there now, and we are told the whole valley is now filled with rainbows. Many people are starting to come from all over to witness this amazing event. His brother Tukupema Riksel and, and Gewa Rinpoche and Sangye Rinpoche are arriving to begin the ceremonies. Now there is talk to leave his body for longer than five days, and Lama Dawa fully expects his body to start shrinking. This happens not infrequently. It's happened recently several times in the last 10, 20 years, where the Lama dies. And I, it's common knowledge among those who are in this context, uh, who are living in Tibet, living among Tibetan Lamas. They just, it's, they just don't doubt it. They've seen, it's been seen so many times. But it is incredibly weird that the Lama dies, he goes into Tukdam, but then days pass, days and days and days pass, and then the body starts to shrink proportionally. It may be like standard height for Tibetan, maybe in, in, America, in foot, five, foot, five foot six. It starts to shrink proportionally, the whole thing. It shrinks down to four feet, three feet, but everything's shrinking. The hands, everything, it looks like a little, a miniature, 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 getting smaller and smaller, but all the proportions right. And of course, the clothes are all then drooping off. They don't get smaller. It's just the body, and it shrinks and shrinks and shrinks. And in some cases, it shrinks until there's nothing left. So there was not a, la- a lama not too long ago that he was shrinking, 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 and then his disciples jumped in and cremated him because they wanted the relics. They didn't want her to shrink away and you know, leave you know, the, the wonderful vanishing man and have no relics afterwards. So they, want, so they cremated him before he'd stopped. Um, no. So I'm just going to say this happens. I'm not going to be so wildly ridiculous and ethnocentric and say, oh, you know, they're Himalayan, what do they know? And that's just pomposity to the nth degree. I I can't do that. I've lived with these people. They're not idiots. And they're not liars either. So this is how Turma practitioners die, Lama Dawa said when he he heard the news. Although it is so sad that he has left us at such an age, young age, 49, it is also great inspiration to the power of the blessings of the Dujom lineage and those who follow its path. So it's a wonderful story, but frankly, it's a very common story. It's, I mean, in just the last 20 years, I think I've heard it three or four times, three or four or five times. Uh, in Nepal, Tony Karam told me two cases he's witnessed. Others in Zamtang Monastery, where I tried to visit several years ago, the chief meditation master, same thing, shrink down, 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 down. Um, so, and there's another one, uh, Geshe Lamrimba, not Gen Lamrimba, Geshe Lamrimba, Galupa Geshe, really amazing. He was still alive when I visited Tibet for the first time. 1992, when he died, same thing, shrank down, 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 down. So, this happens. But what on earth is going on? Okay, the body shrinking, that's just really weird. But at least it's of the continuum. I mean, his, his mind is somehow inhabiting, relating to it, so you know, we can't really... There is an explanation. It's not magical. There's a complete explanation for it. I won't give it right now. But the rainbow business. The rainbows. Rainbows filling the room, rainbows filling the valley. If this just happened once in a long time, you say, well, you know, rainbows happen, what can you do? But when Ben Rinpoche passed away, rainbows coming right down to, I mean, you've seen the photo, it's right down to where he was. I mean, the photo comes to his doorstep. Rainbows all over the place. This is common. It is so common that you'd have to simply be foolish to say coincidence. No, it's not. Come on. It happens extremely frequently when these great lamas pass away. But what's going on? Rainbows? 
There's nothing magical about rainbows. It's not fairy dust. It's not Tinkerbell. It's not fairies. It's, it's a natural phenomenon scientists understand very well. It has to do with moisture in the air and, the air and light being refracted to the little water particles in the sky. And they've understood it, right? It's no big mystery. They don't say, oh, a rainbow. That throws our whole worldview into chaos. No, it doesn't. They understand it quite clearly. But then what does a lama's death have to do with rainbows appearing all over the sky and inside a room? You know, what's going on here? So I'm pointing this, I'm coming in from two angles. And this is, well, we'll stop tonight. Is there not pretty significant evidence here that would seriously empirically challenge? I don't mean with dogma or just reasoning or belief or faith. Empirical evidence that the world isn't just out there. If the Buddhist Shakyamuni really had 32 major and 80 minor marks, everybody should see it, unless you have eye problems. But where is the evidence that Upaka saw anything unusual at all? All he said was, or felt was, you're serene. A lot of people are serene. And you ask him, who's your teacher? Who's your teaching? You know, that's it. No big deal. And when they say something really outrageous, say, whatever, dude. Oh, yoy, yoy. And you walk off. But if a person appears with 32 major minor, that would not be your response. Not on first and not on second. Just does not compute. Doesn't compute. It doesn't make any sense. And exactly when did they appear too? So it really seems right there in the Pali Canon, not everybody saw them. And isn't that kind of the obvious implication? He didn't see them, but Drona years later did, and many other people did, and they all agreed on what they were seeing. 32 major, 80 minor. Right? And then the Buddha expounded on this, how this takes place, right? But if the universe, if the Buddha's body were really there, inherently, objectively really there, then anybody with clear vision would see it. Right? But they didn't. It was relative to their system of measurement, their minds, their mode of observation. And that's the scientific implication of this, which means rational and empirical. So an intertwining of the mind and the environment. So here's a holy being, profound realization. He must have realized Rikpa. He's an advanced, accomplished jirt practitioner, terma practitioner, the stage of generation, very much like Vajrayogini practice. And he's passing away. He passes away with complete serenity. Well, my mother did too, but she's not a jirt practitioner. But not more than serenity. Rainbows filling the room, rainbows filling the valley, and so many people seeing it, they're converging from all directions to see this wondrous event. His passing away was influencing the physical environment around him, such that not only he, he's in Tukdam, but the people around him, they can witness it. You know. So it suggests something empirically. And again, if this happened 100 years ago, say, yeah, yeah, one more story out of Tibet. They fly, they walk through walls, they have rainbows coming. And it happened four days ago, and it's happening right now. And if you go there with a camera, you can probably photograph it. Right? So this is not a wife's tale. Any more than Geshe Zuppa, that's not a wife's tale. Seven days in Tukdam, you know, and so forth. There it is. So I think we have some... That's just the tip of the iceberg there. But we're not simply seeing things as they are, as something objectively real, absolutely out there. There's empirical evidence. In fact, it's all over the place. But these just happen to have occurred very recently. To start questioning. Not be brainwashed by me or Buddhism any more than you want to be brainwashed by neuroscientists or materialist philosophers. Who wants to be brainwashed? We're grown-ups here. If you're interested in reality, then you look with open eyes a clear mind, and you do your very, very best to know what's going on. And that, if that means you're stepping out of the mainstream, well, that's because the mainstream is a turgid river full of crap. <laughs> so step out of the mainstream. <laughs> Enjoy your dinner. See you tomorrow morning. <laughs> on that lofty note. <laughs> <laughs>